You are listening to UBC Waco Podcast. <laughs> are you recording? Yeah. Oh, okay. We can use that as just a scratch track for now. Good morning, UBC. <clears throat> Sermon illustration. What is it, like 1994? Very exciting. How is everybody? Uh, I think there's probably some new folks here today, so if this is your first time at UBC, second, third, we're super excited you're here. If you're here all the time, we're also glad that you are here. Um, in 2014, I went on my first pastoral sabbatical, and I was a spry, 32-year-old, full of ambition, energy, went to Europe, very eager to see the place that transformed Jesus from a Middle Eastern carpenter into a white Western sage. And... Um, <laughs> Naturally, part of my traveling took me to cathedrals. If you were going to subtract all of the art from my life and say you can only have one form of art, I would definitely pick architecture. And so I knew I wanted to see cathedrals, and I made a big part of my trip that I started in Rome. Don't know if you know this. A lot of biblical history took place in Rome. And so um, I went to what I call uh, UBC's East Campus, uh, more popularly known as St. Pete's. Um, Then I took my talents to London and um, went to... St. John's Cathedral, if you know a little bit about history, you know this is one of the few things in, um, in London that was unscathed by the German World War II bombing, and so it's, it's significant for many reasons, it kind of stands as a symbol. And then I walked across town to see the Westminster Cathedral, um, but the best of them in my mind, and I hate to admit it, um, is, is the French. I love Gothic architecture, and nobody does this better than, than Notre Dame. No, Notre Dame is really otherworldly. Um, it's almost not fair. It sits elegantly on the Zion River with its gargoyles, you know, its hunchback bell ringers, its fries, its silk pies, its toast and whatnot. And um, I will say, it's really hard, though, to find like a 20-ounce bottle of Mountain Dew in Paris. They don't put that in the travel brochure. So, um, so I kept traveling, and I would stumble into these unique places. Like um, I went to this, this church in Zurich, Switzerland, uh, Grossmünster. It's where Ulrich Zwingli, the great reformer, pastored during the Reformation. Then I went to St. Finbar's in Cork, Ireland. Every European town really does seem to have this majestic or sometimes quaint church building, and it's very um, breathtaking. Uh, now, if you consider yourself a bit of an amateur architect, and you noted that I was a fan of, of Gothic cathedrals, you may have asked yourself if I've ever been to the Washington Cathedral in D.C., and the answer is Yes. And it is stunning. So between my trip to Europe and being fortunate enough to go to D.C., um, I've hit, knocked out, I would say, about half of the, the cathedrals that are on my bucket list. Here's the rest of them. Lord willing, someday I'd like to see the Sagrada Familia in Barcelona. Um, I would love to see St. Basil's, Basil's, depending on what part of the country you're from, in Moscow. Um, this one in Iceland, um, I can't pronounce because they use their vowels as sparingly as the Czech Republic. I just know it's a cool-looking one. And then one you might not know, which is the Stave Church in Norway. I would love to get there someday and see that. Um, most years during Lent, I read Nicholas Wolterstorff. He's a retired Yale professor of philosophy theology. He wrote a book called Lament for His Son. His son, Eric, died in the Alps. He was in a climbing accident. He was doing his graduate work there, and... Um, in like the 70s. And so Wolterstorff wrote this, this book, but really it's like a raw journal called Lament for a Son. And um, like I said, I read it each year during that. One of the concepts that he writes about that has really stuck with me is something called InScape. And even if you don't know what InScape is, you know what InScape is. It's objects that remind us, they're triggers in our memory and in our hearts, probably I should say, um, that remind us of, of people we've lost, 
A high school friend of mine recently posted something on Facebook. It was a picture of a, a bracket on a wall with two screws that held it there. And she told this really beautiful story about this day that her dad came over and they spent together and he helped her put in this art installation in her home and this bracket and these two screws were like the last surviving piece of that installation. And um, this inanimate, seemingly mundane object filled her memory with something almost transcendent. That's inscape. Buildings are full of inscape. People come and go, they graduate, they move in Waco at least, they move on to a different church, but their inscape remains, we can see it, and the objects around us. Um, that's why this old grocery store matters to us so much. I should now confess this. It just might be that the most significant encounter I had in a church in Europe was at St. Agatha Catholic Church in Glenfisk, Ireland. Um, it's a quaint stone church that uh, has a beautiful graveyard in its backyard, like so many of them in, in England. It sits on a babbling brook with like a, a cobblestone bridge that would carry travelers over it. It's, it's like a, a Christmas village piece or like a Thomas Kincaid painting. So I stopped just to see it because that's what I was doing. I was on my way to Killarney to see the Circle of Kerry for my 33rd birthday. And I, I, the door was open, and I went in, and um, it was empty, but near the front of the church was a row of candles and like an altar. Some of them were lit and some of them weren't. And what I had learned from my trip to St. Louis Cathedral in New Orleans is that in the Catholic tradition, candles are prayer partners. And so you can walk up there and light a candle, and if you want, make a donation. And th so I sat down in a bench by myself, and um, I began praying for my friend's son. He was born with cystic fibrosis, and in 2003, 14 when I was there, he was three years old and he had spent almost all three years of the beginning of his life fighting for his life. And so I prayed for him. I thought of this recently because um, he's now 11, this little boy, and um, he's eligible for a groundbreaking life-saving drug. Like if there's a miracle drug, this what studies this has done for those eligible cystic fibrosis, really good news. And I thought about, you know, it took seven years, but I should note that God answered that prayer that I prayed in St. Agatha way back when. And so when I think about this cozy church, um, it might have just been my favorite and because it has some inscape for me, right? It wasn't um, just that I was a tourist. In this particular setting, I was actually a worshiper. Or I think about the summer of 2018, the last time the State Department let us go to Cuba to work with our missionary partners there. As part of our trip, we visited with Michael and Myra, who are pastors, and it was during their VBS, and this is just outside of Havana. And what I remember about their church building was, is that it was pretty simple. It was cinder blocks with frame windows. They had fans blowing all over to fight the sweltering heat and make the experience as joyful as possible. And then there was like a potpourri of chairs, not unlike what we have in the backside. But what I remember most is that this building was full of joy, that these kids were laughing, that these people were grateful to be in this space. Buildings matter. Makes you wonder about our building. Former grocery store, a real vixen among Waco architecture, the saucy foam green painting outside and the uh, rocks siding outside. Uh, constant access to views of 17th and 18th Street, major thoroughfares in the budding city of Waco, Texas. Some people who have had near-death experiences tell me that hell gets more natural light than our building. As an added bonus, we have a parking lot full of trash that includes occasional asbestos tiles and drug needles. It's a real treat to be around here. Despite my humorous 
nonetheless truthful description of this building, um, we still care about it, right? And why is that? It's because we've dedicated our children here. It's because we've baptized one another. It's because we've had hard conversations here and made difficult decisions. We've grown up a children's ministry and a youth group here. We've paid off this building together. I saw my pastor die right behind me in this building. It has Inscape. I saw two opposite and competing truths emerge in social media over the last year and a half. The first was in 2020 of March. Um, the world was just shutting down. I was on spring break. Um, and what I heard express was a threadbare, even if well-intentioned, um, series of memes and posts. And it was, the church isn't the building. The church is the people. Uh, and those messages were legion. And there was almost like this excited defiance, like the Christians finally got a real opportunity to show the world that we don't need our buildings, our buildings, which demand so much from our budgets, our buildings, which often are cited as idolatrous, idolatrous examples of mismanaged funds and pastors' egos, our buildings, which hide Christians from the real work of evangelism beyond her walls. And then March came and went and April came and went in May and June, and by the middle of the summer, we, we missed our buildings. We missed being together. By the fall, some churches gave up on the CDC and said to the hell with it. By winter, we had forgotten that church was not a building. I'll tell you another group that learned to appreciate their buildings in the absence of presence was professional athletes. I mean, hitting a walk-off home run, putting together a fourth-quarter drive to win a game, um, hitting a, a three-pointer at the buzzer to, to win a game. But all of that greeted by the emptiness of a silent stadium. The NBA missed it so much that when they finished their season in a, the bubble months later, they added fake crowd noises because it helped players. I have to admit to you, I don't get to 1 Kings uh, 8 very often um, in my Bible. This is not the section of the Bible I wake up and rub my hands excited to read. Uh, the temple, Solomon's temple, is completed, and in the story, the Ark of the Covenant is brought back. And so what happens is that Israel, really Judaism as we know it, which was made in, in stages, um, has this moment which is no small development. This is the beginning of a theological move that very much still affects our world. A few weeks ago, I was talking about chapters and sections of the Bible that we gloss over but really are monumental in telling our story. One of those is 2 Samuel 7. It's where God gives David... Uh, the, the promises of the covenant that God will dwell with um, the people of Israel forever and that somebody from David's line will be a descendant. And when Solomon speaks in that Bible reading we just heard, he invokes both of these as if he's trying to jog the memory of God. And so um, he asks God about these things and um, he, uh, he wants to know if God's gonna make good on those promises. This is the beginning of the temple religion, at least in the life of Israel. And so first Solomon cites verse 25 and he asks the question we've all been really wondering in human history since then. Will God indeed dwell on earth? Even heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, much less this house I have built. At least he has the foresight to be honest from the beginning. My sister's family moved here in 2016. They bought the house right next door. And... Um, in the excitement of having my family as neighbors, one of my ideas was to start a podcast with her. Now, mind you, this is like before every celebrity in America started their own podcast, so I thought it had some possible uh, excitement and momentum. 
And um, I thought, brother and sister living next door after having been separated for 20 years, this is, this is a good angle. So I start doing some research and I ordered podcast equipment that I needed. And now I don't know about you, but I'm an Enneagram 3. Uh, if you don't know what Enneagram means and you're new, that's fine to graduate from Baylor. You have to, it'll come eventually. And um, so I'm a 3, which means when I commit to something, I can very easily have grandiose ideas about my success in, in trying my hand. And so I buy these snowball microphones. I get this external USB port so I can have them all in at the same time. I, um, I make sure I have the right software in my computer. Um, so I, I might have got a little bit ahead of myself, but I decided that I needed to create something to carry my podcast equipment in um, because I'd probably be taking my talents to New York and then eventually LA, um, and I'd be traveling all over the US. So I have had a history of proximity with musicians and I noticed they have this very expensive equipment and they put it in these crates with foam and they very much take care of their stuff. So I decided that I need to have a cool container. So I go to uh, Laverty's, it's where the cool people go to buy stuff, and I get this. It's like, a, I guess like an explosive box from the military. And um, it even says explosives on the back on a sticker and you know, looking back, had I had some of that global travel success, it might have been difficult to get through the airports. Um, anyhow, I, I get this box, and then you know I go to Joanne Fabrics, and I like um, I want to line my thing with foam, like the musicians do, right? So that I can take care of my equipment. And by the way, foam from Joanne Fabrics is, is very expensive uh, if you're ever in the business for this kind of a thing. So my wife was elated to have my leftovers for you know the knickknacks and sewing and whatnot, but. Um, so I end up making this very cool equipment box. And um, the truth is, uh, I'll tell you the story about our podcast success. Well, we never made it to LA or New York or Dallas or Hillsboro or even Bellmead. Um, that didn't really go anywhere. But I have this container. And I'm reminded of how strong the instinct within us is to build containers for that which is most precious to us. Our families, we build houses. Our businesses, we have nice workspaces. Even our God. We build temples. And in our building, we are asking this question, will you dwell on earth? Solomon wants to know, we want to know, in our spaces, in our containers. A little bit of history, Solomon built this container, Solomon's temple, it's, it's called. Um, I don't exactly know the date on the timeline, but I do know in 587-ish, Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar come in and they tear this down. Babylon falls into the hand of the Persians, eventually... Cyrus the Great takes power, sends Israel back. They, send, they start the reconstruction period with Ezra and Nehemiah. But this is going to take a few hundred years, and it's going to take the, the likes of Herod the Great, a mudblood Jew, if there ever was one, to finish the project. And that temple, the second temple, Herod's temple, that was destroyed in 70 AD. Now, if you're a Bible-reading, canonical-thinking Christian, you might have been waiting for me to get to and reckon with Matthew 27, this is the potent theological suggestion that is made when after the resurrection, the temple is torn from top to bottom and the presence of God is liberated from the Holy of Holies. What's being said here is that God will be an equal access deity, no priest needed anymore. Paul knows this and runs with it in the great rabbinic tradition of interpreting and then reinterpreting. He tells us even before that second temple is destroyed that you yourselves are a temple. Your bodies are a temple. That's pretty good. That's some good mystical theology. But before we do away with temple, let's consider 
the role of the temple and its promise. Jesus was dedicated in a temple. He taught in the temple. He learned in the temple. And I think even when he was there to rebuke it in anger, if I read his grieving the right, right, right way, I promise you he did so out of love. I suspect that our attitude towards temple is one of the latent signs of supersessionism within us. Jesus was not a Jew after all. Christians made him a Christian. Or Jesus was a Jew after all, I'm sorry. Um, this is why I think that this brief history of temple is, is still important to us because we're still asking the same question that Solomon did. Will you dwell within us? And we're still building containers to hold God. They just exist within us now. And the problem is even those containers fall apart. And why do they fall apart? Maybe like St. John of the Cross before you, there was this long period in your life where you experienced the absence of God. Maybe it's because you started asking questions in a community for whom those questions were too much. Maybe it's because you turn on the news and you watch what's happening in Afghanistan and you just like, I can't comprehend a world in which God exists and this exists. Might be because you've gotten too many unopened envelopes back in your prayer life that were stamped return to sender. The containers within us crack open, the God holders, these things that give contour to the shape of the way we hold faith, they can fall apart. Let me move away from the metaphor and become more concrete. Um, inevitably, at some point, all of us will go through a kind of deconstruction. And I've told you too many times now how we think about faith formation at UBC, but just in case you're new, uh, let me put it up here again. You want, this is a metaphor, your children's pastor to be a fundamentalist. That is, Israel starts with Torah. They start with the concrete. They start with laws. They start with steps for following God. You want your youth pastor to be an evangelical? That is, you want something like Zionism. You want monarchy. You want excitement. You want worship. You want um, expressionism. And then you want your senior adult pastor to be a deconstructionist. Eventually, you will hear from the prophets. Things will not fit. Ecclesiastes will rebuke the simple, naive wisdom of Proverbs. The conversation will have tension within itself, within the scriptures. But eventually, you want your senior adult pastor to be a mystic. You start abiding and striving with Jesus as a rabbinical teacher who says, you may have heard it said, but I say to you, and answers questions with questions and questions with parables. It's not perfect, but I think it's helpful. Uh, when I get on Twitter, um, I have to take a bath when I'm done. But when I do, I notice that a lot of the clamor and what's called weird Christian Twitter seems to be about deconstruction. And I've got to be honest, this time around, I've been a little surprised for this reason. My thought is, haven't we done this before? And if so, um, can't, we just like, uh, can't we just have some of the mystics dispatch what they're learning for the rest of us so we don't have to do this all over again? The problem is mystics by nature have their heads in the clouds because they've given up categories and the concrete. It's hard for them to hand principles down for those of us who still live in enlightened Western thinking and trying to figure this out, and so our containers crack. I think this is why Richard Rohr has become so wildly popular. Everyone knows that he's been through it and somehow he's come out on the other side and he has some really constructive things to say. And chief among them is this quote that I've given you a hundred times where he says, spirituality is caught, it is not taught. If you press the metaphor we've been working with, I think that this works well, right? Because with your container, then you can catch the presence of God. You can catch these notions of who God is. Um... I had a thought, though, about the quote this week that had never occurred to me before. Contextually, I know what Richard Rohr means. 
in the quote, he, he gives this image of sails and um, sails on like a sailboat. And, and so when he says catch, that's the image it, it conjures. Um, but that kind of catching is different than like catching a baseball or catching a fish. You can unfurl your sails, but you can't make the wind blow, right? Before I left for vacation in June, I probably gave one of the nerdiest Bible, uh, sermon illustrations that I've given in a long time. Um, I cited the, the words of Jesus from his prayer in Matthew 6, and I pointed out that um, this word to pray is described in the Greek middle passive. Uh, it's a unique tense that we don't have a, a, uh, the same instance of in, in the English. And so um, what happens is the verb tense where uh, there's a transitive beneficiary is in question. But we don't see that question because by the time we read our Bibles, the English translators that have translated before us have made the decisions before us. Um, and I thought um, the act of being caught, though, uh, is like this. It can be a bit muddy. When one sets their sails for the wind, um, are they an active participant or are they themselves caught? Are they doing the catching? Are they themselves caught? I only ask this question because I think it applies to our containers that catch and keep the presence of God. Do you catch and keep the presence of God or does the presence of God catch and keep you? Who is the transitive beneficiary of building temples or holding containers? The mystics seem to have understood that catching is futile and that being caught is the reality that already is. I think this is why we love the movie It's a Wonderful Life. This is the story of George Bailey, a man who's anxious to make something out of himself and get somewhere, but really falls in love with and eventually helps revive Bedford Falls. And then he gets into trouble and he loses an incoverable, insurmountable amount of money. He's gonna be in trouble with the law. He has a reckoning with Clarence the Christmas Angel. He sees his life as it could be. And then um, he's grateful for the life he has. And at the end of the movie, what we see is a man who's broken and who has spent his life trying to save this community is in fact saved by that community. My sister is a teacher um, and like so many teachers, her resources are insufficient. So she dared to be vulnerable and post her needs on a crowdfunding page for teachers. And one day she came home and she found that she had some packages in her front door. And then um, in this next picture I wanna show you, she began to open the packages and she was weeping because she was overwhelmed by the grace and the generosity of the people around her. And this is what happens when you finally give up and understand that you've been caught. You're overwhelmed by grace. Well, now I should confess to you that the sermon has really gotten rather elementary because I could summarize it this way. You have been saved by grace through faith and your trying doesn't get to change that. Um, I hope you don't hear me denouncing temples and containers. Uh, even though you can't see all of the Grand Canyon, from any one perspective or maybe over the course of your whole life, you can only start seeing some of it from one vantage point. There's one other reason I think that people's containers break that I didn't mention before, and that is this. Our containers simply can't hold God. Richard Rohr says that beholding happens in our lives when we finally stop trying to hold something and surrender to being held. What you need from God will evolve over the course of your life. 
what you're holding to make sense of who God is will change. It'll break and you'll find something else that'll break. That's just how it goes. I wish it wasn't as painful, but that's the way it happens in relationship. Those containers and those temples we build will always prove to be deficient. But if you don't have one at all, you may never catch anything. And if you don't ever catch anything, it's okay because God will catch you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for our space to gather and to worship you, to marvel at the reality of grace, to marvel at the reality of being caught. And we confess both that our catching and our container holding is fruitless, and yet it is a grace. It is a grace to be able to be held by you and to hold you and to be indwelled by you. And so, God, what we do is we name the tensions of the realities that work within us, and we surrender to being held and caught by you. So, Holy Spirit, as we get ready to do new things again this academic year, as we gear up, as we bring energy that we may or may not have, um, we do so knowing um, that we live in a reality in the end in which our striving is all held and, and caught by you. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen. At the conclusion of the preaching portion of the worship, we like to take time and listen to the voice of the Spirit together. Perhaps the Spirit will correct something I have said incorrectly, or perhaps the Spirit will minister something new. Let's listen together.